Hello and welcome to another episode of My Favorite Trees. My name is Thomas and I love trees. So my last episode about forest fires was very long and interesting, but a lot of it ended up revolving around the bummer topic regarding how destructive modern wildfires are. But I had some fun. I sang you a song and spent some time ranting about a bear's name. Sometimes it's fun to have a rant about rather arbitrary details in life. And I've got another one for you today. This episode, I'm talking about junipers. And if you're familiar with junipers, you may recognize that they produce these little blue orbs that are commonly referred to as juniper berries. I'm here to tell you to stop it. Junipers produce cones, not berries. But I'll save the spiel for later. I don't want to distract from how incredible and interesting juniper trees are. This is one of those trees where every part of it has historic use to humans, from medicine to construction to the popular spirit known as gin, and to a few other things that you might have never thought of. The key feature of junipers, I think, is their fragrance. These are smelly trees, but in a good way. Well, depending on your nose. Regardless, let's talk about all the ways that these trees make a difference in our lives. So what is a juniper? Junipers belong to their own genus of evergreen conifers within the overall cypress family, Cupressaceae. Because they are in this family, they find themselves related to the bald cypresses of the gulf swamps, as well as the redwoods and sequoias in California. But it is a rather large family, so these relations are rather distant. Junipers are more closely related to what are called true cypresses, as well as the northern white cedar, which is native to the northeast United States, southeast Canada, and the Great Lakes states, and also the western red cedar, which is native to the Pacific Northwest. That juniper genus, the largest genus in the cypress family, is called juniperus, which is the Latin origin of that common name. The linguistic history behind these names is often disputed and ultimately unknown, Some will argue that it stems from a word meaning youth, in reference to how the tree's medicinal properties would keep one feeling young. But some language nerds out there believe it to not even have Indo-European origins and just leave its history inconclusive. Whatever the name means, there are somewhere between 60 and 70 juniper species, depending on what botanist you talk to. Like I said, we like to argue over, well, anything, really. There are a few different species here I could talk about, but I'll start with what is considered the primary species, known as the common juniper. Juniperus communis, as it is called in Latin, is a species that spans much of the northern hemisphere. It is further split into subspecies roughly based on continent. Despite being the same species, there are certain differences found in junipers growing in, say, North America versus Europe or Asia. That species being able to span such a distance is likely due to the age of this tree group. It is believed to have evolved as early as when our planet had one supercontinent, or at the very least when we had two supercontinents divided by hemisphere. That being said, there are a couple other notable juniper species that are worth talking about. One such is the Tibetan juniper. When talking about alpine areas like the Himalayas where this tree grows, One feature we like to mention is treeline. Treeline is the elevation where we see tree growth go no further. It's how you know you're really high up. 
Tree line varies depending on where in the world you are, and the Tibetan juniper is special for defining the highest tree line in the northern hemisphere, at 4,900 meters or 16,000 feet. Unfortunately, they are not the highest growing trees in the world. That title belongs to a group of trees and shrubs in the southern hemisphere belonging to the Polylepis genus. These are native to the Andes Mountains of South America, where tree line is just a few hundred feet higher. And this is but one example of junipers thriving in extreme conditions. There are a handful of juniper species native to the American West that similarly grow in rocky high elevation sites. Species like the Western juniper are another example of those old gnarled trees that you are likely to find on mountaintops like the bristlecone pine. And actually, in my episode about those pines, I mentioned how my friend Savannah wanted to hear about the twisty trees. She was originally referring to these western juniper trees. So, I guess here you go. Another twisty tree. One more notable juniper species is an eastern American tree that is not usually referred to as juniper. Instead, it is commonly called eastern red cedar, in Latin, Juniperus virginiana. This tree is rather controversial. It is from these trees that we get that vibrantly colored cedar wood that smells so strongly of a perfumey forest. However, the tree itself is very aggressive in its reproduction and spreads like nobody's business. The Great Plains is an ecosystem that exists because of regular fire activity, and without that heavy-handed management, these trees will very easily replace the prairie with dense forests of just itself. Forests that create serious competition for anything else trying to live there. You love to see it in a furniture store, you hate to see it on your land. All in all, these different trees tend to have a fairly similar appearance. Their size will certainly depend on the growth site, but because they so commonly grow in extreme conditions, you are more likely to see them as smaller trees. We're talking just 20 or 30 feet, 6 to 10 meters. I mentioned how the eastern red cedar has really beautiful wood, and that is rather specific to that species. It has these gorgeous hues of pink and yellow and orange, other species of juniper still have attractive wood, but more commonly just in shades of yellow. On top of that, most juniper species are adapted to harsh environments and more likely have really hard, dense wood that's difficult to work with. You know, if you only have so many resources, you won't grow much each year, and those growth rings are going to be tightly packed together and just not as appealing for construction. One interesting detail regarding junipers is their leaves. Juniper leaves are referred to as dimorphic, meaning two shapes. I've mentioned dimorphism in a couple different trees. Different shapes based on whether the tree produces pollen or seeds, or based on what section of the tree these parts grow on. Juniper leaves grow different leaf shapes based on how old they are. New branches will initially grow rather singular needle-shaped leaves, but as that branch ages, eventually what grows in are what are called all-shaped leaves, tightly stacked on top of one another, giving the twigs a green scaly appearance. On top of that, these older scaly leaves will produce these oil glands, uses for which I'll get into a little bit later. Speaking of dimorphism, junipers are considered dioecious, meaning there are male trees and female trees. Male trees produce pollen cones, looking like little brown nubbins at the end of twigs. The female trees produce these seed-bearing cones, and it is these female cones that many people refer to as juniper berries. 
full disclosure, I get why this name has stuck. These cones are small, blue, and spherical. They look like blueberries. The texture is kind of similar to berries as well, and birds who otherwise normally have a diet consisting of small fruits regularly enjoy them. But anatomically, botanically speaking, they are still cones, as much so as pine cones. And I know it's not fun sometimes, but I'm just a real stickler about proper terminology. That about covers it for this tree's biology. So at this point, I want to give you a quick peek into my writing process. Usually I try to arrange the information in this first biology half so that the last thing I talk about leads right into the tree's cultural significance and symbolism. But the challenge I face this week is that every part of this tree is considered useful. And, despite the extent of its usefulness, there is little to no symbolism historically attributed to junipers. Oftentimes, we as humans have attributed symbolism to trees and other aspects of nature based on their usefulness to us. This could be food, this could be shelter, this could be medicine, or a number of other things. The juniper, as I have said, is a tree with a number of uses, and yet doesn't seem to show up as prominently in folklore and faith across human history. The only concrete example I could find was a couple mentions in the Christian Bible where a juniper is seen sheltering important figures like Jesus or the prophet Elijah. This would ultimately give it some protection symbolism. Hooray, the thing all trees have. But even this example is contentious as our modern understanding is that mentions of juniper trees in the Bible are considered translation errors and the trees in these stories are in fact something entirely different. This doesn't make the juniper not well known, it's just simply known for what it's practically used for. Let's start with how its wood is used. The Utah juniper, for instance, one of those species native to the American West, was an important source of material for making bows in tribes native to Nevada and the Southern Sierras. And as I've already mentioned, the Eastern Red Cedar has beautiful and fragrant wood that is commonly used in furniture to this day. My parents have this beautiful cedar chest that I've known my entire life. I actually have a coaster made from cedar wood. Whenever I was in wood shop, I had a classmate who was making a project from this stuff, and while trimming it down with a chainsaw, he cut off a coaster-sized disc of it. I sanded it down, put a nice coat of lacquer on it, and my beverages have been resting on it ever since. The wood is also used for more than just building material. Certain Mediterranean species, such as the prickly juniper, excrete an oil from the wood known as cade oil. Cade oil is a relatively common ingredient in skin creams that treat eczema, as well as in shampoos that treat dandruff. It has also been claimed to aid in digestion and help with diabetes, though there really isn't enough evidence and data to support these claims by Western medical standards. Also keep in mind that the cade oil needs to be used as a small part of an overall solution. Ingesting or absorbing enough quantities of pure cade oil will absolutely give you cancer. Similar oils are found in the juniper's leaves, as I mentioned with those oil glands. These are different from cade oil. Some applications may be similar, but ultimately they are different compounds. Junipers are just oily trees. These leaf oils, typically just called juniper oil, have been used to treat skin irritation as well as general inflammation. And these oils are also very popular with their uses in aromatherapy. 
Aromatherapy is a method of physical and psychological treatment that has been around for thousands of years. In the modern day, it may or may not be considered legitimate medical treatment based on who you talk to. But in general, this is the practice of distilling the oils from various plant components and utilizing the beneficial qualities that the components in these chemicals provide. This is done either through inhalation or skin absorption with things like diffusers, spritzers, salts you can put in bath water, creams, or a number of other things. Juniper leaf and branch oil is one such plant component that is commonly praised in this type of medicine, as it is said to be very grounding and help with anxiety. Depending on who you are, this may be a detraction from quote-unquote real medicine, but historically this kind of folk medicine was medicine. And the juniper has a long history as medicine, as a healing aspect of nature. And despite it not showing up in stories, you can probably attribute healing symbolism to it. One really interesting application of its healing properties has to do with the Scottish New Year celebration known as Hogmanay. I usually like to talk about holidays during those holidays, so apologies here because it's February. But I did write my first outline for the Juniper episode the day before New Year's Eve, if that counts for anything. Anyway, Hogmanay is the Scottish celebration of the New Year and is rife with unique traditions and superstitions. One such tradition involves blessing your house and property with Juniper. Saining, as it is called, seems to be a more antiquated method of celebrating the holiday, but I do understand it to still be around here and there. The traditional practice starts with the collection of parts of the juniper plant and special water. Both collections involve ceremonies that include prayers and rites and whatnot. For example, the water needs to be collected from a dead and living stream. I'm not sure if that means a stream that is somehow both dead and living, or some water from a stagnant stream, and some from a flowing stream. I would not recommend using stagnant water, as all the participants are supposed to take little sips from this special water, and that would be gross. After taking little sips, the water is then sprinkled over all parts of the house, focusing on the far corners and the beds. Then, the juniper is piled into the hearth and set ablaze. Juniper, when burned, creates a lot of smoke, but this seems to be the purpose here. The night before, attendants will have plugged any holes or crevices in the walls and floors so as to keep all that dense smoke in. Then you simply let the smoke fill the house while you're in it until you can't take it anymore, at which point the ceremony is over and everyone goes outside. I'm interpreting this as the juniper's healing essence to essentially replace any ill force that was lingering around from the previous year. Also, it's kind of nice because when you do go outside and get that breath of fresh, smoke-free air, it's kind of like having a fresh start for the new year. Healing properties like those I've described aren't the only uses for the leaves and branches of the juniper. There is a popular use for these plant parts in Norway called cladding. Cladding, for all intents and purposes, is a traditional version of siding on structures. You know, that material on the outermost layer of your house. Norway's winters are very cold and snowy, so for the walls of their barns that get the brunt of the wind, they create a woven wall of juniper boughs. The branches are collected in midsummer when they are said to be the toughest and the leaves are best connected to them. The toughness of juniper boughs is believed to be the reason that woven walls made from this material will withstand up to 50 or 60 intense Norwegian winters. 
Finally, we come to the juniper berries. I mean cones. They're cones, not berries. Anyway, juniper cones are the primary source of where we get the juniper oils used in medicine. Truly, every part of the tree produces oils that we have uses for. Juniper cones have been recorded in medicinal use as far back as 1500 BCE Egypt, where it was used to treat tapeworms. But across history, it's one of those substances that has been treated as a kind of cure-all. Ancient Greek athletes consumed them to aid in their physical stamina, and the Romans used them to help aid in digestion. In Central Europe, they were used to treat things like tapeworms, but also dysentery, cholera, and typhoid. And North American tribes were known to use juniper cones in the treatment of tuberculosis, ulcers, and rheumatism, as well as applying a solution of ground cones to cuts and other wounds. Many of these applications are still implemented today, though again lacking the support from Western science. Another use for the cones historically has been in food. From what we understand, the medicinal uses purely came first, but the cones were later added to food to sort of make it more nutritious or to hide your medicine in what you're eating, like how my housemates need to hide their bulldog's allergy pills and pieces of rotisserie chicken. And at some point, people agreed that it tasted pretty good. And even today, you can buy ground juniper cones or whole cones in a grinder to use as seasoning. Of all the ways juniper can be used in food, perhaps the most well-known example is as a drink, specifically gin. The idea of when and where gin was first invented is a moment often searched for and debated about among historians. The earliest form of consuming juniper as a drink is usually considered to be just for medicine, either submerging the cones in strong alcohol as a preservative or mixing it into wine to make your wine medicinal. Sorry, I've just gotta have another glass. Doctor's orders. The earliest instance we can find of juniper alcohol being consumed recreationally dates back to the 1500s. At that time, the Dutch were revolting against the Spanish and the British came to aid the Dutch in this conflict. We have examples of the British writing about this wonderful drink they call Dutch Courage, which the Dutch call Yennever. Yennever is the Dutch word for juniper and is actually a version of gin that is still produced today. But as I was saying, the British loved this stuff and brought it back home to the Isles, where it became all the rage. In that region, Scotland was the spot for finding wide expanses of juniper woodlands, and they found themselves as an important exporter of juniper cones to what is now both the Netherlands and the UK. Unfortunately, this was before the time of consistent sustainable forestry practices, and by now the juniper crop of Scotland is pretty much done for. Most of the population are old trees past their seeding time, thus yielding limited opportunity for regrowth. For all intents and purposes, it is now endangered in that region. Today, gin made in Europe most likely gets its juniper crop from Eastern Europe or North Africa. All this talk of history, but what exactly is gin? Gin is an alcohol that is made by distilling a variety of grains. That product is then flavored with juniper and any number of other flavorful plant parts like ginger or bay leaves or citrus peels. It can also be made by going through a second distillation with these what are called botanicals. That's an oversimplification and there are other methods of production, which is how you get different kinds of gin. I just wanted to give you a brief summary. The botanicals are what really make it gin. Without them, you're looking at a spirit that is not too different from vodka, which is why I like to call vodka gin that someone was too lazy to finish making. 
Eventually, Jin found a huge following over here in the States, though its origins are... gross. During the 1920s and early 30s, America experienced prohibition, when the production and sale of alcohol was banned, with little exception. That did not stop people from drinking, though. You had bootleggers and rum runners who illegally imported alcohol from outside the country, but you also had homebrewers who secretly made it themselves. This homemade liquor was usually pretty bad for a couple of reasons. Moonshine, for example, was often described as strong enough to peel the paint off your walls. And gin was one of the most popular spirits to make at home because it could be made fairly easily in whatever container you had lying around. Hence why it was often referred to as bathtub gin. As you can imagine, it wasn't very good, but it got the job done. At some point though, folks decided they at least wanted to kind of enjoy their drink. So they started mixing in things like lemon juice and syrups and any other tasty thing they could find. Now, I'm not saying that this is how cocktails were invented. Mixed drinks had been around for a while, but a heightened desire to cover up the taste of bathtub gin really gave a surge in social popularity. This is where you get some of those popular named cocktails, like the Bee's Knees, that predate today's more common mixed drinks. After Prohibition was lifted, gin was something that dropped in popularity when other drinks became more available again. But in recent history, we've seen a real resurgence of gin among popular spirits. The United States specifically has started to take advantage of their own populations of the common juniper. I'm told that selections from the state of Oregon, as well as from Door County, Wisconsin, are particularly excellent for gin production. But with homemade alcohol once again becoming popular, I would advise you against picking your own juniper cones unless you fully know what you are doing. There are several species of juniper growing in North America, and not every species has cones that are actually safe to consume. Just best to source it from a reliable supplier. Now, normally, when I wrap up episodes, I particularly like to tie in the symbolism of the topic tree. You know, use it as inspiration, tell you to be like this tree for whatever reason. But without stories, I don't really have much for you. I guess, go buy some cedar furniture. Go buy yourself some nice gin. I like gin a lot. I would love for you guys to hit me up on social media, and we can talk about our favorite cocktails. Until then, we can look forward to my next episode. On February 22nd, I'm going to be trying something new again. I know, I just did that. But as I've mentioned before, there's only so many trees I can talk about for a full 15 to 20 minutes at a time, so my topic bank only goes so deep. But I might have a way to get creative. At the end of February and early March, I'll be celebrating the birthdays of two rangers who have played big roles in my life as both friends and mentors. So in two weeks, I'll be doing a Ranger's Choice medley and talking about two of these rangers' favorite trees, the Limber Pine and the Walking Palm. I want to thank all of you for listening to this podcast. If you have the time, leave a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to help us grow. The music is by Academy Garden. You can find more of their awesome stuff at academygarden.bandcamp.com. My cover art is by at Boomerang Brit on Instagram. My script editor and social media manager is the wonderful Lori Hilburn. Find me on Twitter and Facebook at My Favorite Trees or on Instagram at Tree Podcast. 
If you'd like to thank me back, you can do so by donating to your favorite sustainable organization, some of which are listed on my website, mftpodcast.com. Now, go find a tree that you love and give it a hug. <laughs>